Hi, Bert Alcorn here, lead pastor of Anthem Ventura. You're listening to the Anthem Ventura podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen and track with our teachings. The sermon you're about to hear has been prayed and labored over, and we really do hope you find this useful and an aid of your discipleship to Jesus. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about Anthem, visit us online at anthemventura.org, or you can download our mobile app from the iTunes or Google Play App Store. Enjoy the next hour or so. We have prayed that God would use it in profound ways in the lives of anyone that may hear it. Thanks so much. Let's open up to Matthew chapter 19 together. Uh, Go ahead and put your thumb in Matthew chapter 19. As you guys turn there, uh, I don't normally do this, but before we even read the text, I have three disclaimers that I want to offer right up front to help us to better set us up to succeed for this evening and what's going to come. First of all, if you guys are familiar with Matthew chapter 19, you know uh, the beginning of this chapter is a text about marriage, it's about singleness, it's about divorce, and there is no way we could possibly cover all that God in the Bible has to say about marriage, singleness, divorce, remarriage in one sermon, or even multiple sermons. There's a lot there, and uh, what we felt would be appropriate is for tonight, we're going to hone in on Matthew chapter 19. We're going to zero in on Jesus' teaching here And then next week, we're actually going to take a pause from Matthew, and we're going to have uh, a unique sermon talking about kind of a more holistic or biblical survey of marriage, remarriage, divorce, singleness. Uh, And so today what we're doing is we're focusing in on Matthew chapter 19, and then next week we're going to kind of unpack some of these issues that will be unearthed this evening. Uh, And to that end, what's going to be very helpful for both you and I is I actually want to hear from you if you do have specific questions uh, relating to marriage, Remarriage, divorce, singleness, anything like that. Uh, we're going to be actually, I have not crafted my message for, for next week. And so I would love to hear feedback from you just to know like, are there specific things that are right on your, like the front burner of your brain that would be uh, worth talking about? And then uh, as well, we're going to do a QA next week. Uh, I don't know if Kev, you told Vanessa, but Kev, Vanessa, and Sherry, we're all, all four of us are going to be up here. We're just going to field a bit of a QA uh, to help us better understand some of the truths that are happening here. And so if there are questions that don't necessarily get answered in the teaching for next week. We'll have a Q&A session uh, at the very end of the message. Uh, and so I think that's going to be a really helpful time. I would love to hear from you. Uh, there's a number you can text. You can also email me, Bert at anthemchurch.org, but you can text uh, that number with any questions you might have. Uh, and so let me just put this in front of you. If there are questions that I raise and don't really answer tonight, uh, some of that is by design and some of that is not by design. That's okay. If you have questions at any point tonight, uh, go ahead and text that number. It'll just store up in a little inbox that I will look at uh, later. You can feel free to be as anonymous or personal as you want. and so uh, we hope this is really helpful. We wanted to, we wanted to structure the ne- this week and next week to be as helpful for you guys as possible in understanding what the Bible has to say about marriage, divorce, remarriage, and singleness. Uh, and also, we, I have a recommended resource for you guys right here. It's a book that was immensely helpful uh, for myself as we were prepping through uh, this particular message, but also just a greater understanding of our theology of marriage. It's called Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage in the Bible uh, by J.E. Adams. 
It's excellent. Uh, I put it up in our bookstore at anthematura.org slash books. And so there's a, like a direct Amazon link there. Highly, highly recommend. Uh, the, he does great work on just biblical exegesis of some of the common questions that we have and just even generating a bit of a theological framework for marriage and singleness and divorce. So this is very, very good. Highly recommend. Uh, there's a link up on our website to that. Okay, that was the first disclaimer. We're not going to cover everything, but we're really going to try. Uh, Second disclaimer is we're stepping into some really direct teaching from Jesus that may or may not cause some squirming with you, uh, maybe based on your own story or based on someone you know. And uh, know that while I am not softening in any way this teaching from Jesus, I do want you guys to remember that this teaching is in context. He's answering a specific question from a specific group of people in a specific time and place, and there is a a greater narrative to what Jesus is talking about here. And that's why we added this second week, by the way, because we knew there was going to create some tension that the book of Matthew itself doesn't resolve, and we wanted to allow some space to wade into that tension. Okay, so third disclaimer is in this room alone, and I know we're a a tight-knit family here in Ventura, but even in this room, there's a diversity of stories around relationships and marriage, and so I know there's every single person in this room has been touched by broken sexuality, broken relationships. Uh, That's not not news. We've been touched by that. We've been affected by it somehow, and some of you guys in this room may have even walked through really troubling seasons in a marriage or troubling seasons as a single person, maybe even... uh, Uh, divorce or remarriage issues with yourself or people in your family. And so just know I very much understand this is tender tender territory we're stepping into. There's a diversity of stories here. And, uh, And that's okay. And what's important to grasp up top here, right up top, is tonight is not about judging the past necessarily. It's about being enlightened by the truth of Scripture for the present and the future. And so at the end of of the message here, uh, just know my aim is to call you to a bit of a fresh start, kind of no matter what your story has been. Once we've been exposed to the teaching of Jesus, we have to be changed by it. And so that's what we're working through tonight. Uh, And we know that grace and truth are coming to us from God's word today. So we're going to receive it as such. So with those three disclaimers right up front, let's actually get into the text uh, of our passage tonight. It's in Matthew chapter 19 verses 1 through 12. I'll kind of read it in a big block and then we'll talk about what is here. Verse 19, or uh, chapter 19, verse 1. When Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. 
But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have had themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Father, we desperately need your help in understanding and applying your teaching to our life. Uh, Father, would you speak to us uh, just through the power of your spirit, through the text that's revealed here to us. Uh, We as a church submit ourselves to you and really do ask that you would change us. God, that no matter whatever our life journey has been up until this minute, we hold that with, with open hands and we say, Jesus, what do you want for us? And so, Father, would you help us this evening? Would you help me teach and preach in a way uh, that is faithful to what is here in your text, but is also uh, to, what, to what you have for us this evening? Uh, God, help us to be good receivers, good doers of your word. We desperately need your help. Amen. 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 Okay, at the start of chapter 19 is a big narrative shift. We've had these key moments throughout Matthew so far, and in in chapter 16, we saw that Jesus started to tell his disciples that something was coming, that he was headed to Jerusalem, and he was headed there for a purpose. But all the while, his ministry has still been up in Galilee. That's kind of been his hometown, his home base for ministry. And in chapter 19, we get the first bit of narrative that he's actually on the way to Jerusalem. And as he heads to Jerusalem, he's heading there for purpose. Because what happens when he gets to Jerusalem? Right? He's first accepted and praised by the crowds. Then he's rejected and arrested. And then he's crucified. And then he's resurrected from the dead. A lot happens in Jerusalem. And Jesus has this all in mind as he's delivering these teachings on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus is on his way to the cross. And that's important to remember in this particular teaching. Because he went to the cross for you and for I and for our sinfulness and to make available a new way to live. And it's in that context, that moving narrative that Jesus is on the way to the cross, that he delivers a teaching about life with him in terms of our marriage and our singleness. And all of the messiness in the rest of this text, or the messiness of our lives in light of this text, is framed in the context of his journey to the cross. Because he loves you. And that's the context in which Jesus teaches on marriage is his love for you and I. Meaning that this is not an academic exercise for Jesus. This is not kind of philosophizing uh, on the way to Jerusalem. But this is something very real both to his disciples and to us reading later. And so as Jesus is on the way to the cross, he's still got these large crowds following him. And he's healing them and he's teaching to them. And they're still tracking with his ministry. They're still following him all around this region. And so when the Pharisees come to test him, they know he's still popular, right? And that's part of the reason they're coming to test him is he's popular and they're looking to sort of catch him or trip him up or categorize him and put him in this certain category of of a rabbi or a prophet and to try to discredit him because of that. So they have all these questions about about the Sabbath, about marriage, about paying tax, and and all the while they're looking for these moments to point and say, aha, he's this kind of teacher, so he's really not who he says he is. Or he's this kind of teacher, so you don't have to listen to what he has to say about this or that. 
And the Pharisees always tried to trap Jesus using kind of some of the, the hot debates of the day. And so these questions were not pulled out of left field, but they always came from a real conversation, a hotly debated conversation that was happening in Judaism at the time. And they pull another one here in verse 3 when they come up to him and test him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And this was a hotly debated conversation in Jesus' time in first century Palestine. These were real wrestles in the Jewish faith. And for this debate, there were two primary kind of camps or primary understandings uh, when we were talking about divorce in life with God. And they all kind of trace back to this one particular law or or command of Moses from Deuteronomy. And so it's Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. You can go and throw it up there. And in that verse, Moses writes, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, and she departs out of the house. And there's a couple of more verses of instruction that happens here, but it's out of this one verse or out of this one sentence that comes a lot of debate and discussion about marriage and divorce. And these two camps are represented by these two primary rabbis who were teaching in this time. And they kind of developed these schools of thought on this particular verse. And the minority, or what would be the conservative understanding of what Moses was saying here, was from Rabbi Shammai. And he basically would look at this verse and says, A man may not divorce his wife unless he's found unchastity in her. Or unless there's been sexual unfaithfulness, unless the marriage covenant has been broken. And so he would hone in on this phrase, some indecency. And that that word, those two words together in the Hebrew related to like nakedness or shame. And so he would hone in and say that is the condition for divorce. That there was some indecency found in her. But that was a bit of the minority view. It was a conservative take on what Moses was saying, and it was not held by many in the time. The majority view was held by Rabbi Hillel, and this was a more liberal view of Moses' law. And he would say a man may divorce his wife even if she, for instance, spoiled a dish for him, had a bad hairstyle, was talking to other men on the street, speaking disrespectfully to in-laws, etc. He had all these reasons for which one could divorce his wife, and he he would hone in on the phrase, finds no favor. And so he'd brush past that some indecency clause, and he would say, well, if he found no favor in her, so if there was something upsetting or unpleasant or dissatisfying about his wife, he had then license to divorce her. And that was the prevailing attitude towards divorce in first century Palestine. And it's very similar to the prevailing view of divorce here in our culture as well. And we often assume most times that things were different in Jesus' day. It was 2,000 years ago. Everything was different. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have everything we understand now about life. But here, it's like the exact same problem that we face, especially in Southern California, where we just have this divorce-on-demand mentality. And later, there was another rabbi who interpreted she finds no favor in his eyes to even go so far as to say if he found another woman more attractive. And so this was taking much liberty with Moses' words, and each uh, interpretation focuses on something different. Rabbi Hillel, the majority uh, view, or the more liberal view to this particular passage, would say, you could divorce for any reason. 
And that was his stance, and that was very popular in Jesus' time and place, much like it is today. And Rabbi Shammai would say, you should divorce in the case of adultery. That's really important. He didn't necessarily just say you could, but he said you should if there is infidelity in the marriage. And so what the Pharisees are hoping in this moment is that Jesus would actually fall into one of those two camps, and they'd be able to peg him in one way or another. And what Jesus masterfully does once again is finds a different way. Look at verse 4. Jesus answered, have you not read, which is like a subtle little slam right to the Pharisees, because of course they've read, have you not read that he who created from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So instead of a discussion about the law, Jesus actually takes them to God's original intent for marriage in the first place. So if you recognize that, that quote, Jesus is actually quoting a bit of Genesis chapter 2 here. He's taking them to the very beginning. What's really key is before sin had entered the world. He takes them into a time and place before sinfulness had penetrated and saturated all humanity. And he takes them back to God's original intent for man and for woman. God's way has been articulated from the beginning. God made male and female. He built them to join in marriage. And he said it wasn't good for man to be alone. So he created a covenant companion for him. And marriage between a man and a woman is not only a gift from God, but it's also part of his plan to fill the earth. And so we understand some of these things from a few verses in Genesis. First and foremost, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on earth. Jesus also gets his understanding of marriage from Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, we see, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so looking back in Genesis, we learn a few things about marriage. We learn that marriage was instituted by God before sin entered the world. Sin doesn't enter the world until Genesis chapter 3. And it's in chapters 1 and 2 where God gives these lavish descriptions of what life together for male and female should be. We see that marriage is a covenant companionship. It's, God, it's God's answer to it's not good for man to be alone. We see that male and female were both created in the image of God. We see that two families send their sons and daughters into marriage and a new family is birthed when a marriage happens. We see that the union of husband and wife covenantally and sexually forms a supernatural bond. And so God, from the very beginning, wanted to teach us a theology of marriage. And we're going to get into a bunch of this next week. So that was a little bit of tee up for what we're going to help understand and unpack next week. But the starting point What's important to understand about Matthew chapter 19 is Jesus' starting point for marriage is not the law, but it's God's original intent before the law came about. God does, doesn't want to just tell you what to do. He wants you to understand its importance and its role in creation and, cre and humanity and what it says about him and you and the gospel in general. 
And Jesus' reference uh, to Genesis, and specifically Genesis 2, happens, and then he adds his own commentary on top of it. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And Jesus is choosing a different way than the two common camps of his day. He's choosing the way of kingdom life, of reconciliation, of cross-caring, rather than a license for divorce on demand like some would adhere to, or the necessity to divorce in the case of adultery, infidelity, like others would adhere to. Jesus says the only option here to disrupt what God has built and instituted would be found in the case of adultery. But even still, it's not a must. And that's where Jesus finds his different way in the midst of these two prevailing camps. As he, throughout, Matthew has been building a picture for a different way of life in the kingdom of God. In fact, we're meant to notice that all of Matthew 18 is the pretext for Matthew 19. Where Matthew 18 is all about forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration, it is no accident that in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus provides for us a different way. Not get a divorce for whatever reason you want. And not, if there is infidelity, you have to get a divorce. But a way that says, I'm going to lead with reconciliation, with forgiveness. Jesus is calling his disciples not to hold marriage as a contract in which you or I could opt out at any time for any reason, or if you violate this part of the contract, that's it, I'm suddenly released, or the contract is void. Jesus is building a picture that marriage is a covenant between two parties, and the basis of a covenant versus a contract is your goal is to seek the well-being of someone else above yourself. Jesus is teaching us to hold marriage as God-ordained, God-instituted, a covenant companionship between a man and a woman for life. And in this, Jesus gives his answer to the question of whether it's lawful to end a marriage. And what he says is the kingdom ideal for a marriage between a man and a woman is to be a singular covenantal relationship for life. That is the kingdom ideal. The posture of a Christian is not holding to the letter of the law, looking for an easy way out, or looking to be released for something that suddenly has become inconvenient or dissatisfying. This life of cross-caring, a posture towards forgiveness and reconciliation. Always repentance, always reconciliation. And Jesus lays out his, his way he lays out his, his kingdom ideal, what God's original intent with marriage was. And then the Pharisees chime back in. But what about the law? They say, what did, why then did Moses command that one give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And they ask this follow-up question that if marriage is the kingdom ideal, why did God, through Moses, command that divorce be a part of the equation And as with much of the law, God had made space for our human brokenness to maneuver through life. The Bible often shares what God wants or dreams about as working to create this picture of what life with God should be like. But the law often communicates what happens when things fall apart. And that's kind of the entire story of Israel that we have throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus responds to them in verse 8 saying, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. 
And so the first mistake that the Pharisees make here is not just misinterpreting the application of the law itself, but they have misread or misunderstood the words of Moses himself. They were mistakenly thinking that because Moses was regulating divorce in the nation of Israel, that that somehow had constituted uh, a, um, a command that this was permissible. And so they ask, why did Moses command that this would be so? And Jesus corrects them and responds and said, Moses permitted or allowed it. And that's a very subtle but a very important distinction for us to understand because a concession is not a command. A a concession to human brokenness does not mean that was God's ideal from the beginning. And so what both sides of the equation, what both camps who have fought and debated this particular issue in Jesus' time and place had both misunderstood Moses' original words, and they misunderstood the context. That because it was in the law, that doesn't mean this was God's ideal for you and I. Jesus goes right back to the beginning, to the garden, where God's ideal was lived out, even just for a short time, And what came later, through the law, through Moses, were God-given, but they were shaped out of human brokenness and the fallenness of humanity. Moses gave the law to regulate common practice, not to approve of it. So one of my commentators that I was reading this week gave a really helpful analogy that I just totally lifted and want to share with you guys. Uh, But no, this is not my own. But it was really helpful in understanding this particular picture, especially with Moses and the law. And he says, just as a car is made to drive safely on the road, not to skid around colliding with other cars, so marriage was made to be a partnership of one man and one woman for life, not something that could just be split up and reassembled whenever one person wanted it. Moses didn't say, as it were, when you drive your car, this is how you have an accident. Rather, when you drive a car, take care not to have an accident, but if tragically an accident occurs, this is how to deal with it. You see, Moses didn't command, go wreck your car and get a new one. Rather, he saw all the car wrecks and felt compelled to write some rules of the road. He tried to regulate the wrecks. This is a very helpful picture for what is happening in the book of Deuteronomy. This is not God's original intent for marriage, but because of the human brokenness and fallenness in the world, here's how we deal with the fallout of human brokenness. And what Jesus does in verse 9 is he gives his correct interpretation of that same text. And he says, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And here... In chapter 19 and in chapter 5, when Jesus is talking about marriage and divorce, this is the only exception Jesus provides to the Genesis directive, for the Genesis ideal of marriage. Jesus says that anyone that divorces apart from the grounds of sexual immorality and remarries is committing adultery. And there's one other exception that we see in Scripture. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 7. We'll get there next week. But in the context of Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce, this is it. There's no wiggle room here. And so this is part, uh, this is the part of the sermon where I actually want to pause and, and say just a couple of things. First, there are more scriptures that speak to marriage, divorce, and singleness, and we'll tackle those. 
Second, there are people in here who, I don't know all of your guys' stories as well as I would like to. There may be people in here who have had divorce be a part of their life or may have been touched by divorce in their family or may get divorced in the future. And you need to know that being divorced doesn't render you a second-class citizen in the church. Okay? Because this has happened in your life or because human brokenness in a marital relationship may touch you in the future does not render you worse than any of other of us sinners here in the room that are saved by grace. And the third uh, caveat here is that Jesus is not giving an in-depth, comprehensive teaching on marriage and divorce. He's not doing it here And he's not doing it in Matthew chapter 5. And people sometimes get really confused when they think that Jesus is giving a comprehensive teaching on marriage and divorced. And so if our question is, when can I get a divorce as a follower of Jesus? And we find this one-liner in chapter 19 that can be really confusing or we might be actually missing what's happening here. But like in Matthew 5, he's weighing in on a raging debate of his day, responding to specific questions in a specific way to direct people back to God's original intent. And what he's doing is he's saying that Rabbi Hillel is way off in his interpretation of the day. So much like our day, it was very much a divorce-on-demand culture where you could say, I'm suddenly dissatisfied in my marriage, I want out. And Jesus is correcting that way of thinking. He's beating up on lust. He's beating up on an easy divorce culture. He's beating up on a culture that favored men over women, and that's just as relevant today as it was then. What Jesus is teaching here means that Jesus rejects the vast majority of the reasons for divorce today as well. So whether it's incompatibility, irreconcilable differences, financial problems, life trauma, falling out of love— To Jesus, these are not a part of the equation. These are moments for repentance and reconciliation and moments for the community of God to come around that couple and help them grow towards something else. But they are not, for Jesus, grounds for divorce. But also importantly, while he calls out Rabbi Hillel for this wild view of divorce stemming from the law of Moses, he also does not necessarily side with the minority view outright of Rabbi Shammai, where there was a requirement for divorce when adultery had taken place. Jesus only allowed it where there was a requirement before. Meaning that Jesus leaves the door open for forgiveness and reconciliation that seems crazy. When the worst thing that can possibly happen in a marriage happens, Jesus leaves the door open for forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation. He leaves the door open for self-denial, self-sacrifice, and cross-caring. And Jesus always calls us to walk in humility and forgiveness and repentance whenever possible. And even though there are biblical grounds for divorce with adultery, the goal is not your happiness. The goal is not your satisfaction. The goal is always reconciliation whenever possible. And I think as we read through this teaching of Jesus, our backs may straighten up a little bit. Like, oh, isn't that a little bit rigid? Isn't that a little bit constraining? This would have been incredibly, maybe it could could even be morally legalistic if received that way. It could be incredibly tight because in the culture in which we live, this is not the prevailing attitude. 
much like it was in first century Palestine, because the, res- the disciples respond, maybe as some uh, people you might know who'd respond. And they say in verse 10, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And the disciples overreact and say it's probably better not to marry. This is, for the disciples hearing this, would have been so constraining in their time and place that their natural response was saying, well, we're just not even going to do the whole marriage thing. This seems way too hard. And this teaching, just as shocking and startling as it is today, was quite the same for the disciples. And Jesus sort of affirms that way of thinking. And look how he responds in verse 11. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. And Jesus explains that to a degree what they said is true, but for only those to whom it is given, namely for, for eunuchs. So eunuchs, I admit, is not part of our normal vernacular, right? It's not tar- part of our normal verbiage today. And so a eunuch was a single person, although they would be single for a variety of reasons. And Jesus lays out two of the commonly understood reasons and adds his third. And he said there are eunuchs from birth, right, those born without the capacity for sexual relations and or without sexual organs, which happened then and it occasionally happens today as well. And he said there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. Those who have been made eunuchs were most likely castrated for the service in a royal court in Jesus' time and place. Doesn't really happen at all today anymore, but this would have been incredibly common in first century Palestine when you had men serving in the service of the royal court, especially to female members of the royal court. There was a process that took place to ensure nothing scandalous ever happened there, if you catch my drift, okay? And Jesus adds a third category. For the kingdom, some have made themselves eunuchs. He's saying those choosing to lay aside certain aspects of life for the sake of the kingdom, here in particular, laying aside the privilege to marry someone. And here in this chapter, Jesus both affirms the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of singleness. Both are gifts from God. And both are walking in God's will. If those who are being, if they're being pursued with a kingdom mindset. Singleness is a gift, not a curse. And it can be used strategically for God's purpose. And for some, it's for a time. And there are ways you can honor your singleness for a time. And for others, it is for life. And there are ways to serve in the kingdom of God in your singleness. Paul, one of the great biblical writers, was single. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul says the singleness is a gift and can be leveraged strategically for the sake of the kingdom. His and Jesus' point is that the kingdom of heaven is so important that it should seem perfectly normal to you and I that someone would forego marriage to serve it in a greater way. 
Now, that's not what really happens today, right? Because you and I and the people around us, especially in Christian communities, idolizes marriage, right? If we're not married, we're desperate to be married. We really don't have a great theology of singleness. We don't have a great culture in place to, to honor and encourage and uphold those who are choosing to be single for the sake of the kingdom. And the context here of what Jesus is saying is really important because in verses 4, 5, and 6, and in verses 8 and 9, Jesus teaches that you cannot have too high of a view of marriage. God instituted it. It's foundational to human flourishing. It's so high that the disciples are taken aback by it. But what he does in verses 11 and 12 is say that however high a view from marriage you have, your view of the kingdom should be much, much, much higher. And that if there are some, some in our midst who choose to be single for the sake of the kingdom, that should not only be normal, but lauded. It should be encouraged. It should be honored. Jesus wants our focus on the gospel, in our singleness, and in our marriage. Jesus isn't anti-marriage or anti-singleness or anti-family. He's anti-anything getting in the way of the gospel. Anything getting in the way or anything ahead of the kingdom. Gospel first, everything else second is Jesus' mantra. And so for us, wherever we find ourselves in that equation, if we are single and don't want to be single, right? If we're single and tired of being single, tired of waiting for something, if we're married and we don't want to be married, or if we're married and we're in a, in a rut or in a, in a tender or difficult place in our marriage, it is easier to see the grass is always greener on the other side. It is easier to see maybe if I just get out of this or maybe if this in my life changes, I'll finally be happy or satisfied or whatever. And in the context of singleness and marriage, Jesus wants our view of the kingdom to be above all else. He wants us to see what he is doing in the world is far more important than your or my marriage. It's far more important than your or my singleness. Gospel first, everything else second. Now, as we grapple with this text, none of us should forget what happened in in verse 1. Jesus taught all of these things on the way to the cross. The greatest sacrifice of all. And this has to frame our conversation. The truth of the cross must be more central in our marriage than our own happiness or our own satisfaction, our own gratification. The truth of the cross must be more central in our marriage or in our singleness, than our own satisfaction or happiness. What Jesus wants us to understand is that our ultimate status, our ultimate standing, has nothing to do if you're single, you're married, or you're divorced. He wants us to understand our identity is in him. And it is through that identity that everything else in our life flows. Our singleness, our, our divorced life, and the ramifications thereof, our marriage, all of that is in light of who we are in Christ. And the reality is none of our stories match up to God's original intent. Because we live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world. And we're all in need of healing and grace. 
right? Good marriages are not problem-free. They're grace-dependent, right? Because you're married and you seem happy doesn't mean that everything is okay. It means you are desperately in need of the grace of Jesus and the grace of your spouse. None of our stories match up with God's original intent. We've all had these windy roads to where we are in life right now. We all need healing and grace. We all can grow in our desire for forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation. We can all grow in our journey towards not having my happiness be the central thing in my life. And so what if all of this, what if marriage, singleness, all of this was, was, something, was for something bigger? Right, as we look at this teaching from Jesus, what if, what if the purpose in our marriage was for something bigger? What if the purpose in our singleness was something bigger? What if we were meant to co-rule, man and woman, co-equals, advancing the kingdom, creating culture, spreading the rule and reign of God together? What if marriage and, and singleness and all this stuff wasn't for your happiness or convenience or preferred lifestyle, but what if this is all to join God in the renewal of all things? I think so often, subtly and consciously, our happiness is the focal point of our life. It's why we want a nicer, more comfortable car for our commute. It's why we want a bigger house that has something bigger than like a little one-person tiny bathroom. It's why, it's why we sometimes are married and don't want to be married. It's why we're sometimes single and don't want to be single. It's why we're not content. It's why we're not grateful. It's why we look inward to our own comfort, our own security, because our happiness is at the center of our life. And Jesus, bit by bit through the book of Matthew, has been chipping away at that worldview. He says, my kingdom is more important than your happiness. That I'm a better king and lord over your life than you are. That you will be put in situations in which you have trials, persecutions, moments where your happiness is not the end goal. That's by design. That's because my kingdom is more important than your happiness, your satisfaction. And so what do we, I was thinking, what do we do with a teaching like this? How should we handle this? For so many of us in the room, this might be just that encouragement to, to press on and, and reflecting forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation and grace in your marriage or in your singleness. For others of you, it may touch on very tender territory where you're walking through something traumatic or you have been touched by something traumatic. There is the, the range in this room for sure. And as I said earlier, we have grace and truth coming from this teaching of Jesus to us. And we've all been affected by broken relationships. And I think there's all room for us to grow and respond to what God is calling us to. What Jesus wants from us is to recognize where we've missed it. Right? You don't have to be in in this, in, uh, in this life or a pattern or a situation of divorce to be someone who is maybe feeling convicted from a message like this or from a teaching of Jesus like this. I think whether we are single or married, we have all missed it. 
And the starting place of Jesus is to recognize you are poor in spirit. We have all missed it. To recognize and to be honest with where we're at. Where our struggle has been. Where we've sought our own kingdom, not his. Then ask God for help to shape us and to mold us. And to see the ideal of the kingdom of God and walk towards that. And so I mentioned at the very top that we're going to land in a space of of recognizing that this can be a new start for each and every one of us here. So it can be a new start if you're single and feeling lonely or hopeless. It can be a new start if you're stuck in a rut with your marriage or are in trouble. It can be a new start if you've walked through the pain of divorce for whatever reason. Jesus wants us to offer up everything from our past. Everything that has led us here and commit from here and into the future is living with him as our king. And so practically, that might mean some of you have some work to do leaving tonight. That means that some of you might need to get in some counseling. Some of you might need to meet up with Sherry and I or Kevin Vanessa or someone else in the church and talk through what is happening in your life That might mean you have to repent of some stuff tonight or ask for forgiveness or give forgiveness. And that's okay. All those things are okay. We're a family and that's what we're here for, to help each other grow in this together. And so if you do need resources, next steps, someone to talk and pray with you, Sherry and I are available. Kevin and S are available. I know George and Rita are available. We would love to walk with you guys through any of this stuff. I think we would be remiss in missing this as a moment to actually deal with what is happening in our lives. If there are struggles, there are temptations, there are moments that need repentance and reconciliation. What Jesus wants for us is to commit to living out God's plan for marriage right now and into the future. No matter what has happened to lead you up to this point, We have a time and a space this evening to start sorting through some of that. So wherever you are at, uh, I would love for you to just put your mind on, on pause to take a few moments and to recognize where we have missed it, where we're currently missing it, in our singleness, in our marriage, whatever, to be honest with where we're at and to legitimately and authentically ask the Lord to help shape us and mold us and to start walking towards his ideal, no matter what has happened up until this point. Jesus wants us to see the truth of scripture and align our lives to it. And so our prayer today is going to be, God, help me make choices to walk towards your desire for my life today. So, John and Joel are going to come back. They're going to lead us in a bit of a time of response. But we're going to sit in a moment of silence here to ask some of these questions of ourselves. Where are we at? Where are we missing it? Are we being honest with ourselves? And what choices do we need to make today to start walking in greater obedience to Jesus tonight? So for some of you, this this might just be like the encouragement to keep going. Right, the encouragement to grow in your Christ-likeness, to grow in, in, in your marriage and reflecting the kingdom ideal for marriage. For others of you, it may mean very hard and stark choices starting this evening. 
And so as we take a moment to pray, ask, God, help me make choices today to walk towards what your desire for my life is. God, would you help us to be honest with ourselves and honest with you, with where we are at. God, if we are struggling in our singleness, if we are lonely, if we feel hopeless, would you draw us close to yourself this evening? Remind us that this season is a gift to be used for kingdom purposes. Father, if we are struggling in our marriage, we feel distant, we feel like we're in a rut, there's legitimate conflict and tension that needs to be worked out. God, would you bring, would you bring those to mind? Help us to not push those down. But God, would we have the boldness and the courage to deal with those things, to make choices tonight that align our lives with your desire for us. Father, we see your ideal for life on this earth. We see what it means to be a man and woman in your kingdom. Would you help shape and mold our lives towards that end?